way we treat the most vulnerable people is a test of who we are. The words of my guest today, Lord Alf Dubbs, the human rights activist with an incredible story beginning at a young age. Escaping from the Nazis in 1930 Czechoslovakia, Alf was to be one of those rescued by the kinder transport, bringing him to the UK in the build-up to war. This early test of courage at the age of just six years old has stayed with him since, leading to a life of public and political service, championing the rights of refugees. I am, he once said, what circumstances have made me. Alf, welcome to Changemakers, a real honour to have you on the show. And I'd love to start with that phrase you said, I am what circumstances have made me. Such incredible circumstances. Well, thank you, first of all, for having me. Well, yes, I, I suppose I am, because things have happened to me, which uh, which if I hadn't been on a kinder transport, if the Nazis hadn't occupied Czechoslovakia and so on, uh, I, 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 my life would have been entirely different. So I suppose I owe a lot to the fact that I managed to escape the Holocaust, uh, thanks to that wonderful Nicky Winton, Sir Nicky Winton, mm. who organised the kinder transport from Czechoslovakia. Other people organised them from Germany and Austria. And and I, I owe my life to him. And I, I met him many times. When I learned who he was, of course, I knew I'd come on a kinder transport. I didn't know it was through him. And then when I met him, we became good friends. A great guy. He died about three years ago, aged 106. But the thing about him was this. He saw a problem in 1938-39, and he, unlike other people who said, this is awful, and then walked away, he said, this is awful, and I'm going to do something about it. Mm. And that's what distinguished him from many people, that he saw a real problem, and he said, I'm going to do something. Do something. And that, that's what made him such an effective person to whom many of us owe our lives. So uh, going back, I was, I was living in Prague. My father was Jewish. My mother wasn't. And my father said to his cousins, if the Nazis come, I'm out. Mm. And they said they'll take their chance. And very tragically, in 1942, the Gestapo called for them and took them to Auschwitz. Uh, but my father left quickly. My mother was refused permission to leave. And so she put me on a kinder transport. Before that, I remember the, the impact of uh, Nazi occupation. We had to tear a picture of President Benish of Czechoslovakia out of our school books and stick in a picture of Hitler, things like that. I didn't really understand. What but I was going to say, you were, you were six years old when all of these, you know, momentous world-changing events were, were happening. But I presume from the perspective of a young child that this must have just been, you know, just, just incredible disruption. I mean, how much do you actually remember of it, Alf, in terms of that, that sort of that, that period? Well, I, as I say, I remember them. Uh, my school book having been uh, truncated by a picture of Hitler. I remember German soldiers everywhere. And my father, of course, had disappeared. And I suppose there was a sense of tension and anxiety, but I can't really say I understood it. I was just aware that things were different and things, things were happening. But as a six-year-old, that's probably all one can actually manage to come to terms with. Mm. And, and I mean, you mentioned the incredible Nicholas Winton, who, who I understand you, you found out a bit later in, in life in terms of his actual contribution. But I suppose this, this, this combination of the of the will to act and the kindness to do so it was this incredible sort of combination of, 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 of virtues. What did you learn about him when, when you met him? He was good company. He was good fun. He liked talking about politics. He was a bit uh, bemused by all the interest in him. I think he took a pride when, you know, when he met several hundred of us who, whose lives he'd saved. He was a bit bemused by, by all this and, by the fact that we said, you know, we owe, we owe our lives to you, Nicky, and so on. But on the other hand, he was, he was in, in many ways a modest man. He kept 
he kept his doings a secret for many years. And and as I say, he was good company, passionately interested in politics. And it's quite funny. Uh, I remember once I said to him, I think on his 102nd birthday, Nicky, how are you? He said, I'm fine from the neck upwards. Neck upwards, young sapling. <laughs> I mean, you, you obviously, you, you grew up in, in post-war Britain and politics was very much in, in your blood also in terms of you, you were to go on to have political aspirations as, as a councillor in the first instance and 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 obviously to, to ever higher office as your career went forward. In terms of how those early years shaped your view about the world, shaped your view about the world of refugees, were, were there stages in terms of how how you became aware of things, how you became aware that you could find a way of making a difference in, in your own right. I suppose so. I became passionately interested in politics uh, when I was about 12 or 13, and none of my school contemporaries in England were interested in politics really at all. I wonder why that was. And I, said to myself, I pondered this, and I thought to myself, well, if evil men can do what they did with the guise of the Nazis and so on uh, through politics, maybe politics can also be used to reverse the process. So I, I, you know, I, I thought about it, and... Uh, at that point, my political ambitions were limited. If I could get on a local council, I thought it'd be great. And then, because I thought to myself, you know, I'm a refugee, English is my third language, all that sort of stuff. But, but I met a Labour MP through the Labour Party, and he um, he said, oh, go for it, go for it. Uh, so I, I did have a go, uh, and eventually I, I ended up in the House of Commons. I was, I was absolutely amazed to find myself there. Um, I remember the first time I was on the list for Prime Minister's Questions of Margaret Thatcher, and I stood up, and I stood up, and I thought, this can't be me. I'm in the, I'm in the. It was an out-of-body experience. Well, it almost. I was thinking about myself being there, and so on. And then I nearly forgot my question. <laughs> but, but, but it was so, it was amazing, really. And there were other things that happened. The first time I had to go getting into Parliament, it was for a non-unwinnable seat. It was the cities of London and Westminster, and my centre of London. And my conservative opponent was Christopher Tugendhat. So we had the spectacle of a refugee from Vienna competing with a refugee from Prague. Of course, he won, but uh, the media never picked that one up, which I thought was interesting. Anyway. Did, you ever, did you ever talk to him about that? Oh, occasionally, yes. I mean, we, we even had a little interlude in, in, in the House of Lords once when he said something like, we'd, we, we'd contested the same constituency. And I said in a loud voice, yeah, but you won. <laughs> <laughs> did you find politics as an arena something... Did it meet your kind of, I guess, burning desire to affect change, to actually do things, to actually look after people, refugees that you wanted to find a way forward for? How how satisfying did you find the political process from the point of view of an activist? That's quite quite a difficult quite a difficult question, which I pondered. First of all, it was difficult to start when when I first became a local councillor. Of course, I was in opposition. I was a, I represented a ward in Paddington, but it was a it was Westminster City Council, which was a safe conservative controlled uh, council. And I suppose I I struggled to find a way of making some sort of impact, which I learned eventually. But when I got the House of Commons, it was just at the time when Margaret Thatcher had won the election and, and she became prime minister. And so I, there I was in opposition and there wasn't a chance to do very much. It was OK initially because I was learning how to do it and trying to find a way of making some sort of impact and understanding the system. But then eventually I realised opposition wasn't really all that wonderful. Uh, my second term, uh, I was on the, on, on, on the opposition front bench and I was looking after immigration policy and so on. on, on from the Labour front bench. And then I began to get more of a feel for what was happening. So I gradually worked my way into it. But mm. I realised it's quite, it's one thing being there. It's another thing trying to achieve something. 
achieve some sort of change. And that became the challenge, and it stayed with me as a challenge when, when I lost my seat in the Commons and I was eventually put, put in the House of Lords. It's a matter of saying, do I understand the system well enough and how can I intervene to make something happen that I believe passionately ought to happen? Mm. I mean, I mean, a lot of people will say for that very reason that they, <laughs> they don't go into a life of, of politics because they can affect change in other ways through NGOs or through even in, in, in areas like business and so on. In terms of if you want to make a difference, you, you talked about how you learned to make an impact. I mean, what did you learn about making an impact in, in, a, in a political world? Well, because it's a, it's a learning process. There's no easy automatic way of understanding that. You have to talk to colleagues. You realise that you have to work collaboratively. Being a loner isn't, isn't the best thing to do. There are some good loners in politics, but on the whole, it's more effective to work with other people uh, and collaborate with them if one, if one wants to achieve some sort of effectiveness. But look, uh, let, 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 let's take a simple thing. On Friday evenings or Saturdays, um, an MP does his constitu- or her constituency surgery. Yeah? And you have people coming in with problems about housing and so on. And these are people who need help. But one of the things I learned was that sometimes they put their finger on something where the policy needs to be changed. And so it's important not only to help the individuals, that's a prime task, who've come for help because they're desperate for something to be done about whatever their big problem is. That's one thing. But the other thing is to draw political conclusions from that mm. and, and, and then take some action. Because then and and ultimately, that means changes in the law, does it, in terms of... Uh, either, law, either law or practice, yes. It can be practice. But, uh, but it, 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 it means, anyway, speaking with the authority of having talked to people who are in this difficulty and then trying to find a way of either by changes in the law, by amending government legislation, or even just by initiating a debate which might lead to changes in practice. So all these are ways of doing it. And one has to work out how best, how best to move forward. And it's quite a challenge. But I mean, I, mean I, I said to myself, you know, what's the point of being there if one doesn't change anything? Mm. Being there for the sake of being there is a bit sterile. I think one has to try and do something. Of course, I learned very quickly that the, 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 the power is, is the key to making changes. Because if you've got power, then you can make changes just like that. So mm. I was very lucky when I was uh, working with Mo Molum, I was a junior minister in Northern Ireland. And then I, had, I was in charge of what were then two departments which on, um, on devolution and direct local rule became four and a half local departments, but that's, by the way, sort of negative productivity gain. But, but um, uh, it, it meant that I could actually do something. I insist on it being done. You strike me as quite a patient person. Is, is, that, is that fair? No, no. <laughs> oh, I, if, if I wanted to achieve something, no point in being patient about it because in the long term, we're all dead. I don't know. But you've given oh. it time. But I mean, it, it strikes me that you played the long game there. In terms of you know some some of your sort of you know big wins on on the legislative agenda, I mean they came they came after a lot of effort and a lot of time spent on them. Well, some didn't, some didn't. Sometimes sometimes a lucky chance comes one's way, and, and one has to seize it. One has to seize the moment, and if one misses the moment, then then it's gone. So so no, the the answer is I don't I don't think I'm a, one should appear to be patient, but one shouldn't necessarily be impatient because it, I, I, that just might put people off. So it's a matter of judging it. But, but sometimes one has to say, I'll do this. This will happen in the fullness of time. But it's going to take a bit longer. And I, there's nothing I can do to make it happen faster. But I will make it happen. Mm. I mean, I mean a, lot, a lot of people will often say that, look, p- politics these days is not where you can get things done easily anymore. It's just not a, an arena where, where things change at pace. What, what's the advice you would give to people, though, about living in a participatory democracy where being involved really does matter? 
Oh, gosh, lots of advice. Well, first of all, if one wants to achieve change, there are other places from which one can achieve change as well. You know, you mentioned NGOs, you mentioned might, might be in a trade union or something. There are various places from which one is able to achieve change. I happen to think that politics was probably the, the most straightforward way for me to try and achieve change. But I, I came there with, with things I want to happen. You know, you've got to believe in something. You don't believe in anything to start with. If you don't have any convictions, then it's quite hard for you to do anything. And even mm. people who, are, who I dislike intensely, whose political views I dislike intensely, I respect the fact that they do have convictions. But, but I, I think a politician without convictions is a pretty sterile sort of creature. So, mm. uh, when I, and of course, the advantage is if one has certain beliefs and views, then once one is in a position to influence, one hits the ground running. You know, when I became minister in all that, there were certain things I believed in. And it's much easier to have a sort of a way of looking at the world, which I brought with me from other experiences, than to have to start from a blank sheet of paper. It's quicker, it's quicker to have, have something one believes in. So I found, I found that, was, that was pretty helpful. And when we look at the world today, a world that has lived through the terrible darkness of the Nazis, that has had the decades that have passed, yet seems to have so many troubles that still face it. How do you feel about the world today? Do you feel positive in the ability to affect change or, or do you think that we just seem to be incapable of learning lessons? Well, sometimes, I, sometimes I'm daunted, right? And, and I do feel incapable of learning lessons. And, and sometimes there are unnecessary failures of leadership quite unnecessary which should have been dealt with you know which were fairly obvious so some of that some of that is frustrating today i think i think one has to believe that that there will be opportunities one has to look out for them one has to have one's eyes open sharply for the possible opportunities now look the thing about child refugees the luck was that the two things that happened apart from the terrible tragedy in syria which led to thousands millions of people on the move the, the, the luck was that there was a bit of legislation going through the Lords and the easiest way to achieve change in Parliament opposition is just to move an amendment to a government bit of legislation. Mm. Uh, uh, and so I was able to do that. And the second bit of luck was that at the time, Save the Children had done a study and said there were 95,000 unaccompanied child refugees somewhere in Europe. And those two things together made me feel, well, this is my opportunity. Advice from colleagues in the Commons, very good advice from, from friends who said, look, there, there's a chance. So I put down the amendment and, and, it, and, it, and it all moved from there. So, so again, this, was, this was Section 67 of the Immigration Act? That's the one, yes. Yeah. That's right. So, uh, it just happened. That came along. Uh, it wasn't that I sat there for years waiting for it. It was a sudden tragedy in Syria. The sight of people on the move on, on our television screens, the knowledge of the awful things happening, the save the children work, and then the fact the amendment was there for me to for me to put down put down to move. So all those things happened together. If I'd missed the boat, I might not have been able to do it. But, mm. So I was lucky in terms of timing. Timing timing matters. I mean, but I suppose also conditions matter in terms, as you say, about you know what we see on our TV screens. We're living obviously through a pandemic, one where the world suddenly seems a lot smaller in terms of the the common challenges that it faces. Do you think that that leads to an opportunity for a kinder world, or, or do you think it could well be the very opposite? Oh, I, I I don't really know the answer to that. I'm hoping I'm hoping we can become a kinder world. One of the things that tipped the balance in getting the government to accept the Section 67 amendment was public opinion, and it it was the fact that public woke up to what was going on. They saw these terrible pictures of people drowning in the Mediterranean. 
the most awful picture of a little Syrian boy, Alan Kurdi, drowned on a Mediterranean beach. And the public woke up to this and said, we must do something about this. And so there was a move in public opinion. And that made its impact on those MPs who were not willing to support the, uh, my moment originally, bearing in mind that I was always anxious it should not be the property of one political party because that's not the way to win. So I was anxious to keep keep it as a cross-party thing as much as possible and to seek out for, uh, for Conservative MPs. And I was very much helped by the fact that public opinion then began to exert pressure. And so that was a positive thing. And that in the end made a difference. So I realised one has to, has to try and keep the public on side. It's no good only talking to one's faithful supporters. That's important. One also has to reach out to other people uh, and, and try and put the case. And I think my optimism is that British people are essentially humanitarian. And if the argument is put, they don't all support child refugees, but 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 quite a quite a quite a few of them, I think, were moved by this and 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 decided to do it. Then came the Brexit referendum, and I think that sort of. I have to say, it did poison the atmosphere mm. uh, because it, it, it created tensions in our communities which were never, not there or not manifested there before. And it was very, very sad uh, that there was a sort of a, a very negative and hostile response. So we're trying to win that, win that argument back again by still saying to people, you know, as a country, we are humanitarian, we have good traditions and we welcome people who, whose lives we're saving. But it strikes me that, that the world goes through moments in time where things seem impossible and the second world war was one of those moments where for for one stage the idea of a thousand year reich looked like that was the way forward that that, that actually darkness had had won and the world moves on because things change when you look at today's circumstances with so many intractable problems a lot of people feel slightly overwhelmed about their ability to affect change what what's the advice you would give to a new generation seeking to deal with intractable problems? Well, by saying that, 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 that hopefully most awful problems are not completely intractable. In other words, one has to look for ways forward through these, through these problems, argue the case and see what, see what one can do. I mean, some of them are fiendishly difficult, but I think one has to believe that somehow or other we can help to make it a better world and we have to believe in ourselves that that's possible. Sometimes it's very depressing. Sometimes the clock is being turned back and everything's back to square one and so on. But other times there are signs of light and there are signs of hope and one has to work at those. I mean, I remember I was involved in a campaign against anti-personnel landmines and cluster bombs. Mm. At one time it looked as if we weren't going to get anywhere. We got there in the end and there was an international agreement and, and the British government eventually went along with it with a bit of nudging. And uh, although not all countries have signed up to it, it means people's lives are being saved because these, these landmines, often in, in areas from which refugees have fled, but these landmines and, and, and cluster bombs, they're there after the conflict is over. Children playing or farmers going about their business or people collecting water, uh, they step on them and have their legs blown off. So mm. and may get killed. <clears throat> and so we went through there. It was a long haul, but it was, it's a matter of collaborating with people and saying a lot of us are in this together and we believe in this. It sounds uh, to me also like you've got to have your mission. You found your issue in refugees because of your own experience and presumably because of the change that you could see you could help to affect. And I, and I guess that is also one of your lessons in terms of how to make a difference is 
commit to your issue. Yeah, well, I think I think probably if I can put it the other way, don't go, don't get involved in politics at any level unless you have a mission. Mm. I mean, that's what I meant by conviction politics. Conviction politics about having a mission. Now, some people's missions I don't like. Uh, if it has a positive humanitarian mission, that is that is the way one can move. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I mean, a lot of people want to see you know a lot of people will say from whether they're from the left or the right that they want to see more conviction in in politics that they want to see more more belief in terms of the ability to get things done but it also strikes me that there is a school of thought which is that politics is about successful management of actually keeping things ticking along well i think you have to you have to manage things properly because if you don't manage them well then then it's chaos and and you, you can't achieve very much but but I, I don't see successful management as being the opposite or opposed to opposed to conviction. Look, let, let me take it in a conservative territory. So uh, Margaret Thatcher, I, I disagreed with most of her policies, but she had convictions. She believed in something, mm. uh, and that meant people knew where she was. I remember we were doing some interviews in in my old constituency in Battersea, and people said if she says she's going to do something, she does it, and we respect that, even though we don't like her policies. So, I mean, that, that's, that, that's part of it. So in contrast, I'm not sure our present prime minister has many convictions, frankly, compared to Margaret Thatcher. Mm. Uh, I, I'm not sure I know what he believes in. Uh, so he may only sense that if he manages things fairly well, then he can stay in power. And that, to me, is a very, is a very bleak way of, of being a prime minister. But it strives you, going back to what I started with, in terms of, you know, circumstances having, having made you, is that Margaret Thatcher's generation, your generation, were shaped by the conditions of world war, within, either, either directly or, or immediately after that. And that actually that was the ever-present backdrop. I wonder today, this generation going through perhaps its first big global event with a pandemic, how that will shape its outlook for the future. Well, I think it ought to. If it doesn't, then then then, then we're missing something. I mean, clearly, when there are dramatic events, they, they ought to and almost bound to influence people. But the thing is, being influenced by them and saying that this is what I lived through, the pandemic, is not the same thing as learning proper lessons as to how to behave in the future. And, and, and it looks like we're going to be in a, in a world where there will be other pandemics in, in the future, hopefully in the distant future. Uh, and I think we have to be prepared to deal with them. And we have to deal with them at a national level and also at a local level. These have, as with refugees, national policies, and then we also have to deal with them at a local level. Mm. And, and I suppose we're back into a world where where jeopardy really is right right in front of you in terms of the decisions that governments are taking. I, I just wonder the degree to which generations of politicians are, are shaped by the benign or or more more risk risky conditions that they are that they live in and are brought up in but it strikes me that risk is 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 a much more prevalent part of political debate in terms of consequences right now well let's put it this way sorry can i go, go back into history and this is only history not my direct experience but but i can understand why somebody who went through the first world war and saw the horrors of the trenches why that person would go out of their way stop there being another war. I, in, in a way, although I did not agree with appeasement in the 1930s, I thought it was awful. The, the fact is, I do understand there some of the motives for appeasement. They were, they were wrong. They were the wrong judgment uh, mm. because they just, they just made, made, things, made things worse. But, but I can understand that. So people are bound to be or ought to be influenced by what they've been through. Uh, and and that, that affects itself. You know, I'm bound to be more emotionally involved with refugees. I understand that. And I understand what it's like being in a country where one's 
where one where one has to learn uh, learn the language, so it becomes one's third language. Understand all these things. These are all hurdles one has to get over. Mm. Some are fearsome and some are not. I suppose another way of saying what you said about people with conviction is it's quite often they're contrarians because quite often they have to go against the established view of the day. So yeah. appeasement being a very good example of that. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think one does have to go. One mustn't accept all the established views. Some established views may be fine. There are certain things that we've done and, and, and tolerance and freedom of speech and so on. There are other things that are, that are, that are not fine. And one, one has to stand out against them. And, and, and one has to look ahead, as it were, and see, well, uh, this has to change. It's inevitably going to change. Now, how can I speed up the process? Mm. But, but I suppose that then brings me on to how, how progress is made. And I think, you know, when I, when I go back to like my my kind of like student days as a historian, I, I was always quite seduced by the idea that, that history is an improving force over time, that technology changes. And of course, the reality of it is, is that it, it's a it's like a heartbeat. It can go forward, it can go backwards. But what, what have you learned about making progress in a world where it's not that linear, where you can't, can't make progress in a straight line? Well, at the risk of repeating myself, one has to know what one believes in and one has to fix one's sights on the changes and work out which changes it is realistic to achieve and which are going to be a, a long time or even longer, longer time in, in, in coming. And one has to set one's sights on those. But sometimes there are short-term things that happen. Uh, and a bit of luck, among, if one can see what's happened, one can also seize on the short-term events to, to do something about it. So sometimes it's the long-term things uh, that influence one. Sometimes there are short-term things mm. that enable one to step in and do. Look, let me, let me let me give you an example. Going back, maybe too detailed, but in the Commons there was there, there was a belief that when there were criminal trials, that the system was trying to make sure the jury was selected in such a way as to be sympathetic to the prosecution. It was blatantly wrong. Uh, and the government assured, assured that it wasn't happening again. And then I got a letter from a prisoner in jail saying it's still happening. He told me this uh, in a letter and, and he explained the details. So I stood up in Parliament and said this. And eventually the Home Secretary had to come back later on in the day and apologise and said, yes, it was happening, having assured me it wasn't. So mm. there was a bit of luck. The fact is that because I'd gone public about an issue, a prisoner in jail had picked it up, realised that it hadn't been solved the way the government had said, and wrote to me. And that was very helpful because that actually made it, now just suddenly out of the blue that happened. But on, on, other, on other occasions, these are long, more long-term things and one has to look at them and say, well, this is, this is what we've got to work for, this is what we've got to push. How important is memory in, in this, in terms of remembering what, what happened in the past? I, I, I interviewed John Rutter, the composer, and he said, gratitude never lasts that actually we, we tend to forget quite quickly. Ah, well, I think you may be right about gratitude, but memory in terms of political effectiveness is important because one can occasionally pick up things and then without having to spend hours on the internet or reading books and things, suddenly, if one's memory is good enough, one can throw it in. And quite often in politics, it's a matter of being able to move quickly when there are events, to step in quickly and, and, and maybe have the right quote or the right comment. Uh, and, and that makes one politically more effective. So a good memory for... Uh, Hal Wilson used to have a brilliant memory. Have a good memory for politicians, useful. Mm. You can call it in, invoke, invoke one's memory uh, and throw it, in, throw it into the argument. But, but I, I suppose what, what, I'm, what I mean by this is that, you know, when, when I think about the post-war generation that I grew up with, my, my grandparents' generation, when they use phrases like never again, it spoke to something in the core that they had lived through something so traumatic in terms of world war was that 
you know, with with everything that had gone on in 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 terms of genocide, in terms of industrialized slaughter, was that there was a real imperative in their mind. In a world where obviously things like survivor testimony is 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 obviously sort of becoming more of a digital record than an ability for people to to have day to day conversations. What what is your what is your message, I guess, to generations that may not have that direct linkage for very much longer? Well, I think one has to be uh, aware of history. One has to be aware of what happened. So when one says never again, people say never again after about the Holocaust. Quite rightly, they say never again. But um, I think it's important to know what happened. If we forget the past, then we can stumble into worse things than if we remember the past. And I I think one has to look at the history of anti-Semitism in in Europe in the 30s, well, it's older than that, 30s, and look at the post-war situation, look at the Holocaust and and the post-war situation. And I think it's important that one should educate a new generation in understanding what happened. Mm. And and that's better. And, And the danger is memories can be short. And, and uh, I think it's important that in our schools and so on, we remind students in our schools of what did happen. And uh, the Holocaust Education Trust takes groups of students to Auschwitz. That's very important that they, they actually see it for themselves and realize what, what happened. And they have ambassadors at schools who can spread the word beyond those who managed to pay, the, pay a visit to a concentration. Mm. All, all these things matter. I mean, they are, they are memory. They are about memory and they are about keeping, keeping the most important bits of history alive. And, and when you consider your own life as a refugee, as somebody that came to this country at a very young age and in another, you know, sort of parallel universe, you may have had a very different life. When you look at the refugee life that you have led in the UK in terms of coming here, becoming by any account, a very successful person in another country. What would you call out as the life learnings that you would want to share in terms of the experience that you have had? Well, it doesn't help if I say you need a bit of luck as well. (laughs) (laughs) Be lucky. (laughs) Well, yeah, I think be lucky lucky is important. Or take advantage. Take advantage of anything that luck luck throws you away. I think... uh, Inevitably, through my background, I had an emotional involvement with refugees. I was emotionally involved with the issue. And so when I meet a young refugee who's fled from the Horn of Africa or Syria or Afghanistan, I have a bit of fellow feeling for that Mm. individual because although their journeys were terrible, my journey was 48 hours on a train on hard wooden seats, but that was fairly straightforward. But we share the bewilderment of being in another country, of trying to learn the language and all that. So I do have some feeling for, I I do have some feeling. On the other hand, I do believe the argument in favour of refugees should not depend only on the personal experience of the individual putting forward the argument. The argument is stronger than that, but it helps me. And here's the thing, because I came to Britain as an unaccompanied child refugee, it made, the gov- made it more difficult for the government to attack unaccompanied child refugees, because it would seem like a sort of a cheap personal attack on me. So politically, it was helpful. I stumbled on that. I didn't, I didn't think that one through. It was the media that, that, that were interested in, in my background, but it, it certainly proved helpful. But but I repeat, when I meet some refugees, they have a fellow feeling with me and I have a fellow feeling with them. And I mm. think that's, uh, that's satisfying in terms of one's own attitudes. And, and just a final question. I mean, in terms of a, a message that you would like to use a platform like Changemakers for other, other others to hear about the importance of continuing the mission, the importance of continuing being open-minded, being kind, being welcoming, the things that 
you have seen as virtues in life, the kind of message that you would want others to hear in terms of carrying the baton on, in terms of actually making progress? Oh, gosh, there are several messages there. That's almost the subject for a book, isn't it? <laughs> You've got about a minute, Alf. <laughs> well, I, I, I've drawn enormous comfort and strength from the young people, volunteers and in NGOs who've worked with refugees. I've drawn enormous amount of strength, people like that. So the feeling is we're not alone. I've never felt I'm doing this on my own. I've felt the strength in collaboration with other people. And it's wonderful to work together with people who've got an enormous sense of energy and commitment. Mm. And that is what has impelled me to keep as busy as I can be. I mean, and I must say, I mean, you come across as such a positive can-do person. And I'm thinking somebody like Nicholas Winton, must have been so genuinely proud to have seen the lives that he helped free to live and to make an impact and to actually see actually what happens next when you actually stand up and make a difference. Well, I think he did. And I think he took a quiet pride in the fact that as a result of his efforts, there were people who were alive, our children, grandchildren, people alive today who owe all that to Nicky Winton, and that gave the world, we're talking about thousands of people now, who, who are here because of Nicky Winton. So yes, absolutely. What a wonderful place to leave it. Alf Dubs, Lord Dubs, thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. Thank you.